Lord Jesus, we are here to, to be your people and we want to faithfully represent you to the world around us. But we're also here because we understand that we need to be set free. We need the freedom that only comes from you. We need our sins forgiven. We need to be washed. We need to be cleansed. And Lord God, I, I ask this morning that your word that you spoke into Paul and through Paul to the Corinthian church would also be your living word speaking to us this morning. We ask that your spirit would be at work in our hearts. We ask that we would be convicted of sin and of righteousness, that we would be set free and transformed and caught up into this, this extraordinary relationship with you. Lord God, as we've prayed already this morning, there are some of us who, who are really not doing well, both with our health. There, there are others here who are not doing well with their relationships. There are others who have work situations which are not well. Lord, you, you know every single one of us, where we've come from, the kind of week and month and, and year we've been having already. Lord Jesus, would you please help us to fix our eyes on you? Would you gather our thoughts and would you open our hearts as we present ourselves to your word? We ask all these things because of the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, please open your Bible this morning. We're going to be... Um, Recapping a little bit out of 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and then into chapter 5. So where we finished off, um, when last we were having a look at Corinthians uh, in chapter 4, was that Paul had, had for chapters and chapters been critiquing the leadership of the Corinthian church. He had been talking about how the leaders that um, had led people astray and it's interesting, we read in the scriptures that anywhere that Paul goes, any, any church that he plants and sets up, he, he is the one that puts the leaders in place. And we find, uh, and, and we'll get into this in Corinthians, but we see it in Ephesians uh, and in Galatians in particular, that Paul puts some guidelines about, oh, when you come to appoint other leaders, you know, here are some things that you need to have in mind. But Paul spent two years in Corinth, and now this letter that he's writing back to them, he is writing in all likelihood to leaders that he left in charge. He would have known the names that had been sent to him uh, of the people who were making leadership decisions. And Paul, particularly in chapter 4, comes down to the very end of, of this massive big argument he's been making for four chapters about leaders not looking like him. And this becomes kind of the, the sharp edge of the discussion Paul has, is that Paul talks about the way that they are persecuted, um, the way that leaders have been put on display, it seems, by God. And then he says to the Corinthian church, but this is not, this is not the way you're behaving. I'm going to send Timothy to you. That's how far off track you are. And then we spoke about Paul threatening the Corinthian church that he says, I myself will come. Uh, verse 19, but I will come to you very soon if the Lord is willing, um, and then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline, or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? And Paul is about to, to choose a, a particularly... Um, sharp, offensive, um, extraordinary example of the way that the Corinthian church's leadership have led them astray. 
we talked through a number of passages of Scripture about what happens when the power of God turns up. We spoke about all these things that Paul had seen happen already, all these ways that the power of God had been at work through him and this, this incredibly confrontational stand that Paul is now taking, completely interrupting the Corinthian church. And we spoke about how maybe we need to be interrupted. Maybe there's a direction that we've been traveling in and God needs to actually get our attention and say, excuse me, you are off course and I'm about to put you back on course. Chapter 5. Please read along with me. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. Um. In the original language, it says uh, that is not even named among the Gentiles. They would not even talk about this. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. There is so much in these first eight verses of chapter five. We're not going to get through all of it. I want to get all of chapter five done because it's a particularly awkward topic. And then you read the scriptures and you're like, Lord, we need to honor what you have put in here for us. So We're going to be in chapter 5 for more than just one week. So let's start by pointing out a couple of the obvious things. And then I really just want to let a very simple idea sit in your thinking this morning. But I warn you, it is sharp and pointy and confrontational. First things first. Paul's main point here is the contrast between what should have happened in Corinth and what has played out. That's where Paul starts here. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. That word in the, in the Greek is pornea, and it, it literally means the stuff going on with sex that is not of God. That's what's reported. And then Paul gets more specific, and of a kind that's not even mentioned amongst the Gentiles. Pagans don't tolerate this. Even people who know nothing about God, this, this is offensive even to them. And he says here, a man is sleeping with his father's wife. It is it's something which is listed um, in Leviticus. We see when the law is given in Leviticus that as God gives his instructions to 
the nation of Israel, these people who are going to be his representative nation, he gives them these laws about, about their government and about their culture. And then he gives them these laws about their sacrifices um, and about how they can be made right with God. And then he, he spends this entire chapter just giving them laws around morality. And then he covers the same bases again, and he goes, okay, here are your ceremonial laws and here are your cultural laws. And we see that when the law is given in the Old Testament, it reflects this way that God seems to communicate. It's called a, a chiasm or a chiastic structure. Let me get into it just for a moment. That it would be like this. Um, Michael has a cat. The cat sat on the mat. The cat on the mat ate Michael's hat. That cat that sat on the mat, that is Michael's cat. The main point is right in the middle. This other stuff adds to our understanding of what's going on in the middle. And this is the form of so much Jewish poetry. This is the form of so many of the Psalms. When you get into Song of Songs, this is the form of it, that often when something is communicated, the point is the thing right in the middle. And so it's no surprise that in the New Testament, we see that the cultural laws on the outside, the Lord puts away. And then we see the sacrificial laws Jesus deals with. But throughout the New Testament, the one thing which continues to represent the character and the identity of God is the moral law. That is one thing that we find Jesus still says to his followers, out of the heart comes sexual immorality. When um, in the book of Acts, James, the head of the Jerusalem church, and Peter and Paul and John get together and they go, how much of the law are we going to give to the Gentiles? They go, oh, well, it's not really about the ceremonial stuff anymore, but they need to keep away from sexual immorality. This is this one continuing thread of, of the life of a believer representing the Lord Jesus Christ is that if we are passionate about following God, we have to deal with sexual immorality. And here Paul says that here is this incredibly offensive behavior going on and it is being celebrated by a church. Let me tread very carefully this morning because if I'm going to go to jail for vilifying anyone, let me make sure that I communicate as clearly as I possibly can. When we pursue Jesus, we hold nothing back. Not any one of us can hold back any part of our life. All because a person's behavior may be heterosexual rather than something else. All because a person might be married rather than single. All because a, a person um, may be you know, of a particular standing socially, at no point can that person hold up their sexuality to God and say, I don't need to repent of this anymore. Every single human being needs to present all of themselves to God and say, God, I need to be forgiven and I need to be transformed. It is across the board. When we talk about equality in the church, it is equality of sin. All are sinners. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All people need the blood of Jesus to cover their identity and their sense of self and their behavior. And all people need to seek 
Christ and follow Christ and hand their life over to Christ. That is biblical equality. It is all about Jesus. So we can't put ourselves in the shoes here of the Corinthian church and follow what they've done because Paul's calling them out on it. But we see similar behaviors play out in churches here in Australia where we go, oh, you know what, a man is sleeping with his father's wife. Well, you know, under what circumstances would that be okay? You know, well, maybe the, the father got married again later in life and maybe she was much younger and then the father died, but, but you know, they, they sort of formed a relationship with each other and they're not biologically related. Irrelevant. At some point we actually have to go, you know what, if the Lord says something, if God communicates something about his ideal of morality, then it means there is something of the timeless identity of God wrapped up in that, and we need to take it so seriously. Have a look uh, at what Paul is about to describe here, that their appropriate and reasonable behavior, uh, reasonable, reasonable behavior should have been that when this came to light in the church, the church should have gone into mourning about it. The church should have been upset, not proud. Interesting choice of words by Paul. Their response should not have been pride. Wow, this person's part of our church. Their response should not have been pride in that. Their response should have been mourning because this is sinful. And then the response is this. That person should have been put out of the fellowship. Now, when we get into the second half of chapter 5, Paul is really clear that there, there is a difference in the way you treat someone who does not know the Lord and someone that claims to know the Lord. There is a, a significant difference. And Paul here is saying, because this person says that they know God and because they're saying that they are part of his fellowship and part of his community and that they are covered by the blood of Christ and the Holy Spirit is inside of them, but this behavior is going on, clearly something is out of order. And Paul is saying you need to treat this person again like they are on the outside. Put them out of the fellowship. And then Paul says this. Remember, Paul has just threatened the Corinthian church that he himself will turn up with a rod of discipline. And read here what he says. For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. The spirit that is in Paul is the same spirit that is present in the Corinthian church. The same spirit that worked miracles and signs and wonders and caused blindness and healed the lame and shook a prison open, that same spirit is the one that connects Paul to the Corinthian church. And it should scare us because that's the spirit that's here, now, in this room. The spirit of God that we come to adore and, and to have at work in our heart. The same spirit that was at work in Paul, that was at work in Corinth, is here. I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus. Paul has already called this one. The Spirit of God at work in Paul is pointing something out. And we find this when we get to the second half of chapter 5, that Paul says we're not supposed to be judging those outside of the church. But he asks the rhetorical question, but aren't we supposed to be judging ourselves? We are allowed to look 
at what's going on amongst people who claim to be representatives of Jesus and we're allowed to go, excuse me, that doesn't add up. That's not right. How does that make sense? Am, am I misunderstanding something? And Paul here is called this. I have already passed judgment, not in the name of Paul, but in the name of the Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled, Corinthians, when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan. That does not mean that you pray to Satan. It means that you pray to Jesus. And he's saying to the Corinthian church, pray to Jesus that this person is cut off from your fellowship. This is serious stuff. Hand this man over to Satan. Why? Have a look at the two pieces here. What's going to get destroyed? The flesh. What's going to get saved? The aim of this exercise is not that the person is destroyed, but that the person is saved. The aim is that they are brought to their senses. The aim is that conviction of sin happens. And if it takes the destruction of the flesh, the the word that's used there is often um, the worldly nature of a person. It's also used for their physical body as well. If that's what it takes in order for someone to realize how much they have drifted into sin and how far from God they are, Paul here is saying that this is the responsibility of the leadership. I'm going to talk about that in a moment. Your boasting is not good. Understatement. In case we've missed it, as as followers of Jesus, we should not be bragging about the sinfulness going on in the life of the church. If someone is wrestling with someone, uh, wrestling with something, if someone is caught up in sin, if if someone has an addiction which they are trying to shake, if if someone is is really in the thick of it. Of course, come and be part of God's family. Come and be brought in. Jesus is not scared of the sin in people. You know, when Jesus interacts with person, their sickness does not infiltrate Jesus, but the life and the power of God infiltrates the sickness. That's the way that the church is supposed to function. When people who are really going through difficult stuff, including us right here in this room, when we gather together and the Spirit of God is present, it transforms us and heals us and releases us and empowers us to shed our sin and our sinfulness. We don't boast about what's going wrong. We boast that the Lord is good. And then Paul here says, don't you know a little yeast yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? That is a phrase which so often is used out of context. What is Paul referring to here as the little yeast? Sin, particularly in this example, incest. As we get into the second half of chapter 5, he lists a number of other things here. Have Have a squeeze down here. Have a look at what he lists. Down in verse 11. Sexually immoral, greedy, idolater, slanderer, drunkard, swindler. When Paul talks about yeast, he's talking about sin. And then he says, don't you know that a little sin, like in Corinth, if it is entertained, if it is celebrated, if it's allowed to continue functioning and and if no one calls it out, it starts affecting everyone. And here is really his point in verse 7. Get rid of the old yeast. 
We are called to leave sin behind. We are called to shed our sin, to be convicted of it, to mourn over it, and to go, that's that's not what we are anymore. Verse 7, so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. He's saying to the Corinthian church, because this is going on in your church and you're not addressing it, this is forming your identity. Sin dictates identity. Your sin is not your identity. Old example. Um, There's a guy who can't feed his family. And so one night he goes out and he holds up a service station and he gets money and, and that ties them over and he manages to feed his family. And he is so upset with himself He's so disappointed in his behavior that he becomes one of the most hardworking providers and he ends up providing food for so many other families. Is the man a thief? According to the law, yeah, a theft has happened. The man is a thief. But is that the man's identity? No, the man is a hardworking provider. His wrongdoing is not his identity. He is able to be forgiven. He is able to atone for what happened. That's able to be paid for. That's able for justice and mercy to happen. But that is not the person's identity. See, the problem is when we have sin and we refuse to recognize that sin has happened in our life or in our past, we can end up living with the guilt of that thing going on inside of us and it ends up in charge of our identity. And when sin is entertained in the church, it's like yeast in a batch of dough. It flavors everything, and we can end up thinking that this is really who we are. There are churches in Australia, there are pastors that I know that I've sat across the table with and had conversations with where they are churches where, let me choose my words really carefully, where my interpretation of the scripture suggests to me very strongly that they are celebrating sin in that church. And that that is forming their identity. Not only that, but that is changing the way that they view the Lord himself. If sin was okay, if sin was actually okay, and if we didn't have to do anything about it, Jesus never would have turned up. This is the fundamentally the biggest issue I have when we entertain sin. Okay, And I'm preaching to myself this morning. When we entertain sin, we take the blood of Jesus and we stomp all over it. And we say, it's not worth anything because God's fine with my sin. He uses this picture, verse 7 and verse 8, of the Passover feast. We're not doing, it's not a communion service this morning, but we understand from communion this symbol that's picked up out of the Passover feast. And I trust you know the story of, of Passover that the Lord sends a sacrifice to keep people alive. And, and when the Passover happens, that night it is, it is the exodus where people leave Egypt and they become the people of God. They become a nation. They become a new creation because they've been paid for with blood. But as part of the Passover feast, they were told, cook your food without any yeast like flatbread, because it's going to keep for longer. It's not going to go off. You're going to be out in the desert. Uh, we find out that the Lord provides manna, but that's not going to happen for a while. And and this symbol of unleavened bread, getting rid of yeast, is, is this picture for the Jewish people of getting rid of sin 
And even when they celebrate those feasts today around the world, in the lead up to it, they go through their entire house getting rid of anything that's got yeast in it. That's the picture. And here Paul says, let us celebrate this festival. Verse 8, let us keep the festival because Christ is our Passover lamb. He's been sacrificed. Let us keep the festival of the Exodus because we are a new creation. We are leaving our sin behind. We are leaving the imprisonment of Egypt behind. But let us keep the festival not with the old bread, our old selves, our old lives filled with sin, leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul here is saying that if you are going to pursue the Lord, sincerity and truth is the way that it happens. If sin in your life was brought to light, how would you respond? Would you respond with sincerity and truth? Would you respond with repentance? Or would you do what this person has done in the Corinthian church where they've actually got everyone around them to celebrate the sin? In this passage of Scripture, we're seeing that there's five different groups of people. So who do you think the one is at the top left? It's the person. It's the dude who's at the center of this. And the one on the right, this other picture that we have, is his mother, his father's wife. And then at the bottom, we've got this community of people in Corinth who are looking at this example going, well, what do we do with this? Because remember, this is a critique of the leadership of the Corinthian church. That's who Paul is calling out here. And in the middle, we've got their leaders. And in green is Paul trying to deal with this mess and what's come up. Our sin and what we do with it is a statement about the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a statement about the identity of God. And we can be tempted to ask the question, at what point do we draw the line? How much sin is, is, is enough sin in the life of the church? You know, are we happy to have people turn up that's got this much sin in them? Or, you know, well, we're, we're okay if, if the person's sin is financial, but if it's sexual, then we're going to get rid of the person. Or we're, we're okay um, having people in the church where their, where their issues are anger or where their issues maybe are embezzlement uh, or where their issues are drunkenness. But so long as we don't see it, you know, we're okay with that. You know, how, how much sin is enough sin? Completely the wrong question. There is no line. It is not about where we draw the line of how much sin is too much sin in the family of God. It is not about trying to draw a line. It is asking which direction are you facing? Because you are either facing towards Jesus and parting with all of your sin and fighting against the sin in your life and hating it more today than you did yesterday hating your own sin more today than you did a year ago, you are, you are either oriented towards the Lord Jesus Christ or you are not. Only you know that. There is no line. So what can we possibly say then that we do with this? Really simple, repent. If there is sin in your life that has got a hold on you or that you are really, really wrestling to let go of, Get away from it. Paul here blames the person's decision. Paul here does not say, oh, well, they're, they're, they're caught up in this sin and they don't, they don't really know anything about it. Paul is saying, no, this person 
has had the capacity to repent and they haven't. It is fundamentally your choice and my choice whether we leave it behind, whether we cut it off, whether we cut it out of our life. But here's the point. It is not who you are. God has not saved you to continue in sin. And either the blood of Christ is powerful and effective to save us or it is not. It is not enough for us to go, you know, I've tried getting rid of it, but I just need this. It is insufficient. Your sin is not who you are. It is not part of you. It is not part of your God-given identity. If you are stuck in sin, Paul says here that the antidote is sincerity and truth. If you are stuck in sin, fighting and wrestling and not getting anywhere, don't double down and just accept it and, and believe that it's part of you. That's a lie. That's not true. If you're stuck, then in sincerity and truth, find someone to confess to. Find someone who will mourn with you. Find someone who will repent with you. If you call me this week and you go, Bob, i got to talk to you. There's stuff going on in my life and I've been wrestling with it for a long time and getting nowhere and I hate it and it's not who I am. Praise God, I will sit with you. I will shed tears with you. It's not who you are. Your sin is not who you are. And we can know freedom. There is no line. If you are prepared to point yourself in the direction of the Lord Jesus Christ, he can save you from anything. But if we are deliberately shying away from God, because actually this sin that we have is comfortable, if it keeps us comfortable, if it comforts us, then here we have some instructions from Paul. And when I read words like this, it makes me anxious, and so it should. It should kind of scare us a little bit. I'm going to give you a fortnight's warning. Not on the 17th. Not on the 17th, Hev. On the 24th, we are going to finish chapter 5 out of Corinthians, and we are going to pray as Paul has instructed the Corinthian church to pray. Now, I'm... I have no intention of using anyone's name or any of that sort of stuff. That's not going to happen. But we are going to pray that if there are those here amongst us, including us, praying for ourselves in this, who love their sin more than they love the Lord Jesus Christ, that whatever needs to happen for the salvation of that person's soul will happen, even if it is the destruction of their flesh. We cannot read the words that the Spirit of God has given through Paul to the Corinthian church and think they don't apply to us. So if there is sin that you've been wrestling with for a long time, I put to you the decision for this week and for next week, decide whether you are going to keep it or not. Because if God is going to reorient you and reorient us as his church to pursue him wholeheartedly, then we must confront our sin and we must confront our love of sin. So I invite you to repent with me this fortnight because this is what we're going to pray in two weeks' time. It's good for us to have a healthy fear of God, I think. And if this doesn't scare you, 
then I suggest that maybe, maybe it should. We're going to pray. Lord Jesus, we are so easily misled. We are so easily captivated by sin and and like your people in the Old Testament who would mix themselves with all other cultures and, and intermarry and, and, and lose sight of who they are, we give ourselves to this culture. We fall in love with other gods. We fill our hearts and our minds with stuff which has nothing to do with you but is so against you. And then we wonder why we stumble and fall. We wonder why we don't enjoy that richness and that depth of, of knowing you and walking with you and passionately pursuing you, knowing the intimacy of your spirit being so near to us. Lord Jesus, we have read this morning the words of Paul as he calls out the Corinthian church, and your spirit is present here with us. And I know that you are calling us out. Lord God, I know there are people in this room who feel that they have done everything they can to get rid of sin and it hasn't worked and so they've just accepted that it's part of who they are. Lord Jesus, please speak. Lord Jesus, please speak. Speak your words. Let people feel that tapping on their heart of you wanting to come in and to reintroduce yourself and maybe evict some things that are in there. Lord God, we believe the words of Paul that your power is present. Lord, I know that you can change the way that people's minds are wired. I know that you can extract things from the deepest part of the human heart and radically change the course of a person's life. I know you do that. And Lord, I speak freedom in your name to this church family and to the people here who feel that they are prisoners and are trapped. Freedom in the name of Jesus. His blood has paid for your sin and you don't need to carry it anymore. It is not who you are. You are not your sin. You belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is yours and you are his. And he is more than able to cleanse us. Whatever you are carrying, he's more than able to take it from you. Lord Jesus, I ask that we would know your love in the midst of this very confrontational stuff, that you would remind us that you love us. But Lord Jesus, would you be at work in us? Would this not be something that we simply dust off ourselves as we go about the activities of the week? Lord Jesus, we adore you and we want to know you and walk with you. Would you please set us free as we need to be set free? We ask this in your name, Lord Jesus.